Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 922. Uh, really, just get off your ass and do stuff. Um, it's it's not expensive to do these things. You can explore different corners of the world on a, on a real budget or have a huge amount of fun in simple and usually fairly tatty old cars without getting precious about it. So yeah, get out there and make it happen. Get off your ass, do it. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's a very special guest calling in from across the pond in the United Kingdom, Rich Duisberg. Hey, Rich, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I'm buckled up and I'm sober as well, officer. <laughs> yes, so they say. <laughs> this is going to be fun, I can tell. Rich Duisberg lives in the United Kingdom, as I said, and he is an occasional writer and presenter who once earned a living helping companies to put new cars together properly. He is the editor at the website motorpunk.com, an eclectic mix of road trips, budget motorsports, intercontinental banger rallies, appreciation of modern classics, and above all, a genuine passion for the best of British. Rich's writings have been published in numerous magazines, including Classic and Sports Car, Practical Performance Car. Is it Banzai? Am I saying that right? Yeah, Banzai. It's a Japanese specialist magazine. I wrote for those a few years ago. Yeah, Banzai, I believe you pronounce it. Yeah. Banzai, Evo, GT Porsche, and many more. He has often appeared on CBS's X Cars and Car Perfection channels, enthusing about his historic motoring twaddle. His latest book, Confessions from Quality Control, is a lighthearted traipse through various car factories around the world and is described by Sniff Patrol as hilarious. Among the clutter in his garage, you'll find an Alfa Romeo GTV, a Mark I MX-5, a BMW Barge, and a vintage Royal Enfield push bike. And by the way, five-time Le Mans winner Derek Bell, a past guest here on Cars Yeah, once quoted about Rich when asked to ride in a Morgan three-wheeler, I'm not getting in a car with him. So, Rich, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a brief moment to share a little bit more about your career and a very obvious passion for automobiles? Yeah, thank you. Wow, what an introduction. Um, yeah, I'm very pleased to be here. Obviously, Derek Bell, Vic Elford, Brian Redmond, some real big names now. And now me. Um, I have got quite a modest start. My first job actually was uh, cleaning the toilets in a gas station. It's the first time <laughs> I've ever actually admitted that to anybody. Hey, we've got a scoop here at Cars, yeah. <laughs> Rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, and from there, I ended up uh, actually in a job supplying um, measurement equipment to all the car factories in the UK and around continental Europe, measuring and testing how well the cars are actually assembled. It's quite high-tech stuff, and it gave me kind of a unique insight as to how cars were actually built and this was in the 80s and 90s when well frankly there were a lot of uh, national stereotypes and terrible quality and accidents and cover-ups and all kinds of interesting subterfuge so uh, that, that was really good fun and from there I got into basically writing about cars and making short films about cars and so on as well but I think people know me not that I'm famous for anything really um, but for my experience in uh, kind of whistleblowing a little bit some of the uh, shenanigans at Rover and some of the uh, the cock-ups at Fiat and other places and writing about it. So, uh, so yeah, that's who I am. Very, very cool. We're going to have some fun as we continue on this journey you call your life. But first, I'm going to ask if you would share with us a quote or a mantra, something that has some meaning for you. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? So, Rich, take the wheel. 
Yeah, um, well, this is one from uh, your side of the pond, actually. Hunter S. Thompson once said, uh, nothing handles like a rental car, or worse <laughs> to that effect. And uh, I like that phrase so much, I wrote a book and gave it that exact title, because nothing really, nothing handles like a rental car, not in my experience anyway. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about that book. Yeah, sure. Um, well, there was a second book uh, that I published, and I discovered fairly early on in my career that I'm not much of a driver. I mean, I'm very fortunate to get to drive some interesting things, but I discovered that I was having the most fun in the most inappropriate cars. So a group of friends and I basically wanted to do a track day. Of course, a track day is going to cost you a few hundred dollars. There's wear and tear on your car and insurance and risk and the usual lousy British weather. And I thought, you know, I can take a budget airline flight down to Milan. I can pick up a little Fiat 500 or something like that and just race up Stelvio. And of course, uh, with Brexit looming and everything else, we don't have any issues with getting points on your license or getting banned for driving abroad because you're running on a foreign license. So a whole bunch of us went over and we raced from uh, the bottom to the top of the Stelvio Pass, obviously famous bit of mountain road. And it's the most fun I ever had. And it only cost me, I think it was something like 200 quid. It probably would have been less without the bar bill at the end of it. So <laughs> it was a really cheap, fun adventure. And I then realized that actually it's not it's not about the car. It's, uh, it's about the adventure and the experience. And from there, basically, I'd spend most weekends uh, just booking a budget flight, picking up a car and discovering sort of interesting corners of the world. Um, Places like or Paddy Hopkirk's Monte Carlo win, for example, rented a mini. I flew down, rented a mini and uh, spent a couple of days charging up and down the cold of Torini, annoying the French police and stuff like that. And it was great fun. Um, so, yeah, the, the quote, nothing handles like a rental really is uh, is made for me. And I, I can't uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, the flip side of that, of course, to get into quite a few scrapes, but I'd rather be scraping a rental car than my own car. And I did manage to get blacklisted by a couple of rental companies in the end. But perversely, I also ended up getting free rental cars from a, a very large <laughs> rental company who begins with uh, the letter H. Uh, when they discovered that lots of people were sort of following in my footsteps and just flying abroad and renting cars just to have fun in those cars. So weirdly, some of them blacklisted me and some of them actually gave me cars for free. So that was uh, that was really good fun. And uh, yeah, I still like to do that kind of stuff to this day when I get a moment. Very, very nice. Yes, uh, that same company is who I rented from. And when I walked up to my car, they had actually misnumbered my lot and sitting there was a brand new Corvette. And I went, Oh, yeah, this is a nice upgrade. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, wait, no, mine is the big Nissan Pathfinder next to the Corvette. So, yeah, that that happens. My luggage wouldn't have fitted in there anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that does sometimes happen. And weirdly, I have asked for downgrades in the past because you turn up and get like a midsize, like a, uh, I don't know, Opel Astra or something deeply unpleasant that GM spewed out. And then uh, you spot something like a Renault Twingo and think, that's got to be fun. So, you know, the old adage, when in Rome, uh, do the Romans, that's yes. really what I like to do. So if it's uh, if it's somewhere in France and something like a Twingo is, is huge fun. I, think, I don't think you get the Twingo in the U.S. No, do we don't have those over here. But uh, next time I go to Europe, I think maybe I'll uh, ask for one now that you've recommended that car. Yeah, so. they're great. They're cool. Engines in the boot and it's got no power and skinny tires. So you don't have to be doing crazy speeds to enjoy it and then of course italy means a fiat 500 up in scotland means whatever i can get my hands on so um, yeah it's a uh, it's great fun to try and match the car but yeah asking for a downgrade does sometimes get some strange looks but uh, it is nice to, uh, to to do the whole the whole less is more thing great recommendation there's your tip for the day cars yeah listeners well would you share a story with us that instigated your passion for cars if you look back in your life is there a pivotal moment that you realize you were indeed a car guy 
Uh, yeah, because I wasn't a car guy as a, as a child. Actually, my uh, my my parents are really not into cars at all. Um, no elder brothers or sisters to show me the way. And it really was when I started uh, working with measurement uh, technology in the factories. And uh, as a young guy, I went down to uh, the the Rover factory in Cowley near Oxford, where they were making the the Rover 800 and the Rover 600. I think the Rover 800 got called the Sterling over there, and um, realised that actually I knew more about putting a car together properly than than they did it was a heavily unionized plant there was lots of accidents a lot of uh, unrest and uh, management mismanagement and bad design and all kinds of crazy things happening and then i thought you know what i'm really interested in how they put cars together how you measure that i don't think i should say which company i worked for back then because they are still in business and i had some I had some great times there so i think they should go yeah they should go and mention but uh, Nonetheless, I thought, you know, I know I know now about how cars go together and who does it right and who does it wrong. So for a sort of a glorious eight or 10 years, I was charging around different car plants around the world. And then then I really, really got into cars. And in quite a big way, I was fortunate to earn some money to buy some interesting stuff of my own and uh, any sort of spare money I had. Not there was a lot of it with a young family, but any spare money I had was spent automotive adventuring, which to this uh, to this day is my strap line, really automotive adventuring. And uh, just traveling the world a little bit and, and exploring places associated with historic motorsport, you know, Targa Florio and, and this kind of stuff. So really that moment turned when looking at, a, you know, a really ropey, terrible Rover 800 that was just full of faults on a production line, talking to engineers that really, really didn't give a stuff and um, <laughs> and thinking, you know, there has to be a better way of doing this. And, and then, of course, writing about it. Writing about it was quite interesting. That's the uh, my my first book, Confessions from Quality Control. I couldn't get a publisher to take it on because I wasn't that well known, and I'm probably not that well known even now. And they were very scared about litigation, and obviously opening the opening the lid on what Ford were doing wrong would would leave them and me open to some fairly nasty legal action. So in the end, I got a lawyer in London, a guy uh, Bernie Neiman, who was. Um, fantastic who told me what i couldn't couldn't get away with and uh, we changed some names and we tweaked some dates and stuff so people could recognize themselves and i wrote about all of the uh, the, the terrible things that i saw uh, from different car factories around the world and uh, and self-published because i probably wouldn't take it on and it was a great success i had some tremendous feedback and, and thoroughly enjoyed it so back to the the guy at the, the rover 800 factory and those kind of guys really i owe i owe them a great debt and the, the strange thing is since then, having seen how good or bad cars were put together back then, I've actually got a real fondness for Rover now. I don't know if it's because I'm getting older and I've grown a bad moustache. I'm not quite sure what, but <laughs> at the time, I really wouldn't touch one with a barge pole. Yet now, I think, yeah, I kind of miss Rover, and I don't mind admitting it. Very nice. Brilliant. I love it. Well, let's take a look at some of the other roads you've driven down and talk about a big challenge in your career or even a big failure. These things teach us great lessons that we can carry on with. So take us to one of your stories and tell us how that experience helped you gain even more momentum in your career and or your business. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Um, I think... Actually, it wasn't that long ago I did it, but it was it was a huge amount of fun. But we Brits grew up uh, in an era uh, being told that British made products were rubbish. And uh, of course, now I uh, passionately argue against that. But uh, we were told that, uh, you know, 70s and 80s Rovers, for example, were uh, were pretty poorly made. And to be fair, some of them were. But I kind of wanted to experiment for myself and see, you know, just how bad were these things? So I bought a uh, an Austin Metro, which if you haven't seen one, then Google it. But uh, real horrible economy box. 
put together by real militant hotheads uh, in a very shonky fashion in the UK and uh, tagged along a friend who bought a, uh, a Rover Maestro. Um, the Maestro wasn't that bad, but actually when production ended in Birmingham in the UK, there are a lot of parts left over and they shipped them to a company in Bulgaria that were going to assemble them in Bulgaria as kind of luxury transport for the communists. And uh, they were so bad that the Bulgarians didn't want them and shipped them back to the UK. So these were like third hand oh parts. Oh, my God. <laughs> and a company built new cars with these. So it was a brand new car, but the parts have been halfway around Europe and through a don't know how many hands, but it was really a wretched thing. So to test these cars, we decided to uh, to drive them down to Morocco. And frankly, I don't remember why we decided on Morocco. I think it was wanting to do the Paris-Dakar route or um, relive the uh, the Casablanca Grand Prix. So the idea was I spent, uh, the Rover was uh, 300, uh, 300 pounds, or what's that, like $500 for a car. And uh, we drove it almost nonstop from the UK, uh, France, Spain, uh, over the Straits of Gibraltar, and then down to, uh, to Morocco. Morocco, uh, just to see how good or bad they were. And of course, we got in some terrible scrapes because they really were dreadful things. But uh, we had a great time. And that was a hell of a challenge. I think the, the most amusing thing at the end was destroying all evidence of ownership. <laughs> So they're the logbook and the owner's forms. We uh, we actually covered in, in food and fed them to the apes. Um, so the apes, oh <laughs> the apes on, the, on the rock of Gibraltar. And I got a photograph of them doing this. Uh, it's my favorite ever photograph is a monkey just eating my paperwork. And the car itself, we swapped uh, at a cafe. We, we finished the uh, finished and it's fairly, fairly terrible place to drive Morocco, I have to say. So we found a cafe, decided that we were going to just fly home. So we ordered uh, some tea and we ordered some cake because we're Brits. So tea and cake. Yes. And... Um, we said to the owner, what, what's the bill? And he told us. And we said, well, would you like some free cars instead? And he, this guy couldn't believe his look. So I like to think that these two very, very terrible rovers still soldier on somewhere in Africa. And, you know, the keys in the hand of a waiter who couldn't believe his look. So uh, that was <laughs> that was really good fun. I mean, there were some challenges along the way. I mean, the damn things would break down every few miles, as you would expect. But I kind of developed um, a sort of like a mechanical karma, kind of a mechanical sympathy with these things in that if you repair a broken part of an old car like that, particularly something like a Rover, you know, let's say you change your connector, then really all you're doing is disturbing the wire next to it. So you change the wire and the wire goes into a component like an alternator or something. And you've got to change that as well. And before you know it, you've done a whole nut and bolt restoration, a whole respray <laughs> and you're building the car and you've spent thousands and you've gone nowhere. You know, your right. wife has left you, your weekend is ruined and you run out of money. And for what? <laughs> so I got to the stage where i would only spend money if the thing was on fire you know if it's not on fire then great we'll carry on going if, if it's on fire then we'll just spend the minimum on putting it right and uh, that kind of equilibrium really worked and uh, i recommend it wholeheartedly now somebody like you that loves to keep their cars uh, clean and fresh you know that that might be uh, might be a challenge for me yeah i think so <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i think it would but it uh, it works for me and uh, and it's a lot of fun so uh, yeah that was uh, that that was quite a good journey i also um i've never written about this actually but uh, some years ago, there was a huge volcano in Iceland erupted. I don't know if you remember it on the news there or if it made the news in the US, but basically all flights around northern Europe were grounded for days and days and days. I do remember that. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, it was good. Well, I was in northern Norway at the time uh, in a Corvette, which was a story in itself, and I simply had to get home. So I kind of 
I won't say stolen in case they're listening, but I kind of borrowed a truck and uh, and drove it home. And I, I'm not religious in any way, but I'm a big believer in karma. And I drove past the airport in this battered old van. I mean, Norway to England, that's a long journey. And, uh, you know, the weather wasn't great either. And I drove past the airport and I thought, you know, I should, I should try and help somebody out here. So I stopped at the airport and, of course, it was chaos and people have been sleeping on the floor for days and it was cold and all the rest of it. I said, look, if anybody wants to lift back to London, um, just, uh, you know, just, just raise your hand. And this one guy put up his hand and uh, I said, look, uh, I can give you a free ride uh, back to England. I said, as long as you're not a country and Western fan uh, or, uh, or you have no sense of humor. And this guy got in the car and he turned out uh, he was um, uh, this guy was a nightmare. And so <laughs> I, I thought I was doing him quite a good face. So we got in the car and the first thing he did was uh, he said, you know, he said, you look kind of scruffy to me because I'm kind of a scruffy chap. And uh, he said, have you been drinking? I said, well, you know, I've been stuck here for days. So I have had a drink, but, you know, I'm not not drinking now. This is not safe to do so. You know, don't try this at home, kids. And uh, he said, you know, um, God doesn't like drinkers. And I thought, OK, that's you know, that's fair enough. I, I respect his opinion on that. And then um, I had one CD. I mean, Norwegian radio is terrible. And uh, I had some rock and roll on, some Maximo Park, if anybody knows it. He said, you know, he said, I really don't like rock and roll. So I switched my music off. And uh, then he asked to borrow some money. And then he said he was hungry. And I thought, this is really yeah, not going this well. This is not it, you know? what I planned. <laughs> yeah. So um, he took the ferry down to Denmark and he had no money. So I had to pay for his ticket on the ferry, which was kind of annoying. And uh, we're driving on the motorway in, uh, in Denmark. And I might have been speeding a bit because, you know, I want to get home. And uh, he said, you know, this is, this is unacceptable. I, he said, I don't like your driving. And we got to a hotel. It was about two o'clock in the morning. It was really cold and wet and dark. And this hotel was really cheap, roadside hotel. And he said, I don't like this hotel. So it doesn't look good to me. He said, can you drive around and find somewhere better? And I thought, okay, I've had enough of this guy yeah, now. So yeah. I made that decision. Uh, I was going to abandon him. So I said to him, look, okay, I paid for his room. And um, I said, let's meet in the morning at uh, eight o'clock sharp. And uh, we've got a long way to go. And I set my alarm for 6 a.m. And I thought, all I'm going to do is I'm just going to check out and leave the guy behind. And I think he realized what I was going to do because I set my alarm for six and hoped to sneak out without him. And he was already stood with his bag <laughs> packed and then yes. next to the van. This man was a nut. So... Anyway, lots of other scrapes. We, we drove through Denmark, Germany, uh, Holland, Belgium, France, uh, managed to get the last seat on a ferry to get back to the UK. And we got back to London and uh, we drove past the airport. And he said, you know, he said, would you help me find my car? I said, I, I think I've left it in the car park somewhere. I said, what do you mean help me find your car in the car park? You know, you must know where your car is. So what kind of a car is it? He said, it's a it's a silver hatchback. And of course, when you know London Airport, there's like yeah. 10,000 cars parked up. So that was it. Stopped the car, threw him out, threw his bags out and never saw him again. So, yeah, I've been involved in a few oh kind of peculiar, gosh. unintended road trips. But that one was kind of foisted upon me. So, uh, oh. yeah, that was good fun. Well, there's a saying, no good deed goes unpunished. And that was your punishment for that good <laughs> deed. So, yeah. Well, how about a how about a career aha moment? Is there one of those you could share with us? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I think it was the moment when I realized that I... I'm better at telling a story or, or maybe your listeners would disagree listening to me waffle <laughs> on, but uh, I'm better at telling a story or writing a story than I am at driving. And uh, again, going back to, for example, Stelvio and uh, the Gavia Pass and Mortirolo Pass in northern Italy are really hairy mountain passes. And we went and did it. We had a great time. And I came back and I, I published a story and a couple of magazines got in touch. And I then realized that, hey, people are prepared to pay for this nonsense. And that was great fun. So, you know, I'm never going to be a Formula One driver. I'm never going to make any money as a professional driver. And that's and of course, it's an expensive hobby. So I'm going to tell stories about driving. I'm going to tell stories about how people can have these adventures uh, at a fairly sensible cost and, and getting to 
a bit of trouble, but not too much trouble. At that moment, I thought, well, this is uh, this is great. And then I uh, got to the position where I was getting paid to actually do these things. I mean, getting paid to, to fly around the world and do crazy stuff is pretty much every uh, every gearhead's dream, I would imagine. So uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun since then. But that was the moment when I realized that, yeah, it's um, I can make money out of telling the stories instead of actually trying to beat somebody uh, around a corner. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. Well, how about a Prouder's career moment? I would assume you had several or many of those. Is there one that you could share with us? Um, yeah. I don't know about um, uh, in my personal life. I've got three teenage daughters that I'm very proud of. And um, I think all right, nobody's listening to this, right? I can tell you this in, in, in total confidence that uh, it's just between us. It's just between us. Yes. Just like this is just like a private phone yes. call. call. Um, yeah. Like if I ever get anything interesting from uh, as a press fleet call, then uh, I, I may let my kids occasionally drive them. And uh, I think my my youngest daughter was at uh, primary school age then, so I don't even think she was riding a bike. And I may have let her drive a Bentley Continental because uh, it's only like two pedals, right? Go right. and stop. Oh so yeah, it can't be that difficult. So no, I'm kind of proud of that because I didn't get a I didn't get a motoring in, so I thought I'd share one with my kids. Um, the proudest, like a business-related moment, really, uh, with my sensible hat on now, was telling Porsche what they were doing wrong in Zuffenhausen in their factory um, in the early nineties oh, uh, with, yes. with their assembly. And my my Germany actually uh, pretty bad my english is pretty terrible as you can hear and uh, to be taken seriously when working for a sort of a small british company and walking into porsche and making some fabulous things like the the very last of the air-cooled 911s and 993 and stuff like the 968 and really well-made cars like that to tell them that they're doing stuff wrong and how they might do it better and to be taken seriously and have them spend money with me that was i'm, I'm still proud of that to this day and if you look at obviously Porsche quality is okay they're famous for their quality but they're not flawless by any means when people talk about the last of the proper Porsches and the last of the super quality Porsches stuff like the 993 I like to think I've got a tiny weenie part in that so uh, I'm particularly proud of that well you should be and uh, those of us who are Porsche fanatics like me uh, remember back in the early 90s Porsche was in very dire straits financially things were really looking poor there and the great stories of how they completely reorganized and rearranged that company and how they changed the way their parts come in and it's very cool to know that you had a piece in that because what came out of that of course the 993 fabulous car fun car I had one of those a C4S love that car Picked one up in 96 at the factory and drove it for two weeks all over Europe. That VRAM engine, just when it comes on song, just makes that whoop sound. That's just too much. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful things. And they were all tested on the on the Stuttgart. Maybe you know this, but I don't know if your listeners would know, but um, they were actually, each car came off the production line, and they would do a lap of the Stuttgart ring road as a road test for yeah. every car that they built. And um, they were quite... You know, even to this day, I think they're a little bit old fashioned in some respects. And I kind of like that. And it was it was cool to visit. It's a little bit like visiting Lotus at Heffel. And in fact, they still do this to this day. Uh, obviously, the factory's right next to their own racetrack, an old airfield. So you can go and have a meeting um, and then you'd maybe go for a walk at lunch, take a cup of tea. And you'd see somebody screaming around the track in a prototype Elise or something. So to actually see the cars being used next to the factory instead of them being whisked away on covered up transporters or something is uh, is really cool. And I, I bought um, I bought a Porsche 968 a few years ago and uh, not new obviously and um, that was a wonderful wonderful thing I was I treated that car very badly and it was nothing but fun so uh, <laughs> yeah I, I missed that one another great car for sure well let's talk about your first really special car is there a car in your life when you look back the first one you got that was really special for you 
Yeah, it's, it's kind of a modest thing, really, because as I say, I, I really didn't get into cars until I started getting into car factories. So, I mean, since then, I've been very fortunate to own all sorts of interesting and sometimes slightly ropey exotica. But the first one I really loved was actually a Mazda MX-5 or a Miata, as you'd call it. Yes. I've got what I think is the oldest road-going uh, version of the UK, a late 98-built car. And I love it. I bought it actually for a banger rally. Uh, I bought it to take it to the Nürburgring in uh, 2005. So what, like 12, 12 years ago or whatever it is. And um, I thought I would just kind of have it and, and just race it to death and crash it and throw it away. And I uh, became really attached to it. And uh, it's become a part of the family. So last year, actually, you, you've never seen Russ like it. I mean, different makes and models are famous for rusting. This car had a lot of owners. Uh, it had been left outside in the city and gotten really damp. And uh, I'd kind of run it on a shoestring for years because it's like kind of a third or fourth car just rotting at the back of the garage. And uh, last year or the year before, it had an 80-hour restoration. And still, even now, you look at it and you can kind of smell it rusting. You know, you can smell that <laughs> ferrous oxide creeping from beneath the paint. I don't know what they made these things from. But uh, on the flip side, actually, the power-to-weight ratio must be magnificent because it's kind of rotted off so much weight now. Yeah, that, it's uh, improving that, as the day go by <laughs> yeah i always see it as a positive yeah I, it can only it can only be a good thing but so that's pretty special to me and um yeah i, I kind of love it i in fact it's off the road at the moment i'm trying to uh, get a, a slightly less ropey alfa romeo gtv in good shape but Ooh, I, nice. I wouldn't love it like i love the master that's a yeah. lot of fun and uh you know people sometimes ask me you know what do you recommend something cheap fun i can work on it rear wheel drive something you can enjoy at sensible speeds oh really i know it's a cliche but you you, you can't go wrong with one of those they're, they're great little machines yeah those first gen mazdas when they came out i worked with a guy who had one he let me drive it and i thought this is a really fun car and this past uh weekend or a couple weeks weekends ago i should say i was down in san francisco to visit my son for thanksgiving here and we drove down to the seahawks football game at levi stadium in near San Jose and, and in front of me on the freeway were two old first gen Miatas. I went, oh, look at that. I mean, you just don't see many of them around anymore. So very, very fun. Well, how about a car you've owned to let go? Do you have a seller's remorse story that brings a tear to your eye? Yeah, I had um, I had a Volvo 850R, or I think you call them 855 over there, the uh, the estate the station wagon version yes. that had been tuned by uh, TWR when Volvo took them racing in touring cars in Britain in the 90s. They prepared half a dozen, or TWR Racing prepared uh, half a dozen of them uh, as uh, like Volvo press cars. And I got one of those, and it was like my first sensible family car, which was a great thing. I kind of missed that, but the one I really miss is the Porsche 968 Sport. That was a, a UK-only spec, kind of a peculiar lightweight thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, my association with, with Porsche in, uh, in the 90s, uh, with work was uh, was fairly strong, so I love that. But the prices went absolutely bonkers. I had some financial shenanigans to take care of at home, and it, and it had to go. And um, I really miss that. It was a very very simple car, very well balanced, um, nice, easy to live with. I did some historic rallying with it in France. I did a few road trips. I took it uh, over to Germany a few times, and it never let me down. And um, yeah, really really nice car. And if it, if it's out there, and then I'd like to get it back. It was uh, it was a wonderful thing. There you go. Yeah, of course, the 968 coming on the tail of the 944s, but I think they'd refine that whole car very, very nicely by the time that car came out. So they're really, really great. Well, I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about motorpunk.com and what they might expect to find there if you've got listeners that have not found that website. So what are you guys doing there that has you very excited and fired up? 
Yeah, it's it's motorpunk.co.uk, just uh, just so as you know. Um, but um, yeah, no worries. It's kind of a it's kind of a shop window to nonsense that that we get up to. I mean, uh, a lot of the stuff on there will end up in print uh, or sometimes on the screen because we you know we make make films uh, that occasionally end up on French television that nobody watches, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, which is another story in itself. Oui, 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 Monsieur. C'est bon. And the irony is, I don't speak a word of French either, so uh, that's uh, that, that makes it even more interesting. Well, we like writing about heroes, what we call Italian heroes. So, for example, uh, there was a guy you may have heard, your, your, your listeners may have heard of uh, the Great Train Robbery, which is one of the, the biggest robberies in uh, in European history back in the 60s. And one of the guys that took part in that robbery uh, was a guy called uh, Roy James. And he was a kind of a Formula Junior racing driver that ran out of money. And he's, a, he's also in a, was an associate of uh, Bernie Eccleston, of course, who's Mr. F1 or was Mr. F1. So it's a real kind of shady long and gangster type and uh, he got up some really crazy stuff so I like writing about the likes of him and um, little things like he uh, I mean he robbed he burgled uh, Jack the uh, Le Mans competition department to Jaguar's factory in Coventry to steal parts for his own road car. Oh, my. Um, yeah, it's a story that he, he burgled old man Cooper and stole his silver trophies and melted them down. And he did some really crazy stuff. He, he burgled a hotel in Monaco. And he, he really, he had a very, very colourful life. Um, he had a trial for a professional football club, soccer club over here. And uh, for me, the cars, modern cars and Jaguars in particular, yeah, they're interesting, but I'm more interested in the, these, uh, the people in the, in the history. And, and so when people look at motorpunk.co.uk, you'll find kind of a, a love of the eclectic and the unloved and the exotic and the, uh, the bangonomic side of things. But what really, yeah, really gets us going is, uh, is the interesting characters such as him. Um, another one is, is Jock Horsfall. I, I don't know if, uh, people have seen the film The Man Who Never Was. Shall, 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 shall I ramble about Jock Horsfall? What yeah, tell us a little bit about him. Okay, a bit self-conscious now. Jock Horsfall was a 1930s uh, Aston Martin racing driver. And uh, during the, when the war broke out, he went to work for uh, military intelligence uh, in the UK. And uh, he reported to Ian Fleming. And, of course, Ian Fleming went on to write the James Bond films. Yes. Now, there's a, there's a fairly strong theory that um, Jock Horsfall was the inspiration for the original Bond. But and it's, there's so many interesting things about this guy. Uh, I mean, he was registered blind, for example. I mean, a blind racing driver. And it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's quite a story. But um, he was part of Operation Mincemeat, which you just have to look up. You know, it's, it's a great story. But Operation Mincemeat was the, the British stole a corpse from a morgue in London they dressed it as a uh, as a captain and they put some fake invasion plans in the pocket of this dead body and uh, they dropped the body in the sea knowing that the uh, the enemy uh, the, the axis forces would find it and uh, the, the germans found it and assumed that uh, the allies were going to invade greece when in fact they were off to uh, invade uh, sicily or, or vice versa ah. and they totally tricked them so it changed the course of the war but when you look at jock horsfall i mean he a blind racing driver basically robbing a, a mortuary to steal a body to change the course of the war. It's a, it's a, it's a great story. Yeah. And he would do things like he would wire up car batteries to toilets to give people electric shocks. And <laughs> quite childish and puerile stuff, but yeah. really, really funny nonetheless. So 
characters like that, I think, are great and should be celebrated. So at Motorpunk, you know, we love to talk about it. I should say hello also, by the way, to a couple of other guys uh, that are on Motorpunk with me. Uh, Dr. O, my friend, who runs the uh, South Wales British Leyland Mausoleum, who's got more rotten rovers than, uh, than, than you'd imagine <laughs> is possible. So uh, there's a couple of us that, uh, that write that kind of stuff. And, it, and it's a lot of fun. And you find it in print elsewhere. But if, uh, if, you, if you look up motorpunk.co.uk, you'll find more nonsense like that. Ah, uh, sounds like a lot of fun. And it is. And I'll make sure I put a link to that website on Rich's show notes page here on the Cars Yeah website. Now, here's a very introspective question for you, Rich. If you were a car, a motor car, what would you be and why? It's difficult to difficult to answer that without sounding quite pompous, isn't it, really? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you might get a different answers from if, if you ask people about me. Uh, you, you probably get a different answer from my girlfriend. Uh, <laughs> I would like to think I'm kind of a – I like Lotus. I've always had an affinity with Lotus. Um, I like the fact that they're taking very uh, modest, humble components – uh, and turning them into something kind of unique using uh, using very limited resources and having to get uh, a little bit creative. So uh, for me, yeah, something like a Lotus, uh, an old an old Elan uh, would be uh, would be great. Not the quickest, not the sharpest, not the most pleasant inside. <laughs> sure. But uh, but you know something something a bit different. So yeah, I'd, I'd be quite happy to be compared with a Lotus Elan. There you go. Very nice. Well, my, my first vintage race car was a Lotus 18 Formula Junior, 1960. So uh, wow, I have fantastic. a n- nice place in my heart for that. Of course, uh, the great Jimmy Clark, that was the first open wheel car he raced. Of course, I wasn't quite as fast as he was, but... Ah, uh, uh, you're being modest. <laughs> I always felt a little bit of him in the car with me when I jumped in for a race around the track. So very nice. Well, Rich, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah! sponsors. Well, we're into December now, and the holidays are here. And if you have an automotive enthusiast on your list that's hard to buy for, get them a Covercraft gift card. They can go and order anything they want from the Covercraft website. All sorts of things are there, including car covers, dash covers, seat covers, sunscreens, front-end protection, floor mats, canine covers, work truck, power sports covers. There's everything there for the automotive enthusiast to take care of their special vehicles. I've been a Covercraft user since 1975. That's right, all the way back to high school. So go to Covercraft.com, click on the gift card button, order it in any denomination you'd like. You can put it in the mail, they'll ship it for you, stick it in a stocking, and you'll make somebody very happy. That's Covercraft.com, Covercraft gift cards at Covercraft.com. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people, but what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimball.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. Okay, Rich, we are back, and we're entering the last lap. I'm going to fire off a series of questions to you and ask you to give me some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? 
That advice, I think, comes from uh, the editor of a magazine, PPC Mag, that occasionally write for Will Holman, the world's grumpiest, sweariest man, uh, who says, stick a V8 in it. His answer to everything he wants to go quicker is stick a V8 in it. And uh, I've never actually done that yet, but I think that's great advice and I need to follow it. Yes, there's a gentleman up in the Pacific Northwest that has an MGB GT with a small block V8 in that car uh, that he shoehorned in. Very, very interesting car to drive for sure. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your many successes over the years? Yeah, I just uh, I just like winging it, really. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase. But, oh, yes. Uh, just, yeah, winging it. Yeah, winging it works. Uh, it, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission, and uh, <laughs> that, works, uh, that works very well for me. So, yeah, more people should wing it. Uh, it's amazing what you can get away with. Absolutely. Now, do you have a resource that you think our listeners would enjoy, other than, of course, motorpunk.co.uk? Yeah, there's the kind of a couple of forums that I uh, I quite like. Uh, there's a forum called Blatters, B-L-A-T-T-E-R-S, which is, uh, there's some interesting stuff on there. The one I absolutely love at the moment, if you'll excuse a little bit of swearing, is uh, Autoshite, which is uh, <laughs> a grump of quite cynical old men extolling the virtues of 200-pound broken Peugeots. And it's kind of wringing the life out of rotten exotica. And like they kind of pass these wretched cars around amongst themselves and squeeze a bit more life out of it. So it's quite funny to look at the, the bodges and shortcuts that those guys are making, keeping uh, keeping cars alive. So I've got no association with it. I don't even post on there. But every day I'm reading auto shite. So, uh, yeah, look look that up. That's, uh, that's good for a laugh. <laughs> First time mentioned here on Cars. Yeah, I can't wait to see what's going on over there. <laughs> now, if you could have a drink or if I could arrange for you to have a drink with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased, who would that person be? Uh, I think uh, it'd have to be Colin Chapman. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful guy. And not just for his, his automotive achievements. I mean, uh, he bought and ran a, a company that made boats, uh, Moonraker Boats. There's a really great story to be told there that I've, I've, uh, I've written about a couple of times about... Uh, yeah, about Colin making boats. Uh, the fact that he defrauded the British government of £10 million really shouldn't appeal to me. But I'm I'm from Robin Hood, uh, Robin Hood country. So to me, uh, <laughs> robbing from the rich to give to the poor has got a certain appeal to it. So uh, I think he'd have some great stories to tell. And uh, you can't libel the dead either. That's the other interesting thing. So if I'm having a drink with him and he's dead, then he could tell me all the dirty secrets. <laughs> and uh, they make it even more interesting. So, yeah, I'll have a pint of Guinness with him, please. I think a couple pints would be in, tr- in form with uh, that gentleman. Yes, what about background what a history well how about a book i know you probably read a lot of cool books but is there one that you could share with us yeah sure i've just finished reading a book by uh, a guy called roland white it's simply called vulcan 607 and it tells the story of how the royal air force got some very creaky old uh, vulcans vulcans are the last of our sort of delta wing jet bombers and uh, they bombed the, the falkland islands during the falklands war uh, in the 80s with it the story is not so much about the the war itself but more the uh, the achievements of getting these very, very decrepit and badly maintained aircraft into the air, flying them halfway around the world, refueling constantly, of course, because it's a colossal distance, just to drop one bomb on one airfield. It's, uh, it's a hell of a story. So, yeah, Vulcan 607 by Roland White. That's a great read. Uh, you should, uh, should, should check it out. Awesome. Well, that's the first time that book's been recommended here on Cars Yeah, and I'm glad that it is. Something new for my guest recommended books section. And listeners, I'll remind you, you can find all these great resources on Rich's show notes page on carsyeah.com. Just go there and type in Rich Duisberg, D-U-I-S-B-E-R-G. 
you'll find that page with all these great links. All right, Rich, we're up to the checkered flag. And this last question can be a bit of a doozy. I'm going to buy you any cool collector card today in the world. Doesn't matter where it is or what it costs. I'm going to make sure it shows up in your garage. Money is no object. But I want you to drive it. I want you to enjoy it. And you can't sell it to buy a bunch of old Miatas with. So that little trick is off the table. <laughs> What's it going to be? It would it would be it's quite a modest choice. I think if, if you're funding this and you've got a, a billion dollars and I really could go nuts. But the truth is, I would like a Caterham 160. Caterhams, you'll know. I don't know if you get the 160 model over there, but it's basically the slowest, slowest, smallest engine one that they do. This is a, an 800cc three-cylinder live axle uh, Caterham that uh, they uh, they still make new today. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to uh, to blag them for a couple of uh, features uh, in the past, and they are absolutely marvellous. It's everything you want from a sports car. It's it's light. It's uh, it gives great feedback, simple to fix, and it looks so cool. And it's one of those very very rare cars that wherever you go, people will smile and people will let you out. You know, you can be in the most wretched traffic in the most car-unfriendly city. And if you're in something like a Caterham, particularly something like the little 160, everybody's going to smile and wave and, and let you out. And uh, I think they're great machines. So, yeah, if you're going to treat me, uh, Mark, that's very kind. I'll take one of those. Well, you've made it very easy for me today because I have a great contact here. One of my past guests is Lance Stander, and he owns a company here in the United States and in South Africa called Superformance Hillbank, and it just so happens they sell brand new caterums there. So I'm going to give him a call. We can build a car for you exactly to your standards. I think you'll be very happy with that. I've had the pleasure of driving those. It's like being in a go-kart. It's so cool. They're just the coolest thing. So yeah. I think we're going to have some fun. Yeah, that's easy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's do that. That's, uh, that'd be great. It's, uh, it's the, the, uh, the phrase, less is more absolutely personified. It's got a whiff of Colin Chapman about it yep. and uh, a bit of underdog too. So yeah, wonderful machines, wonderful machines. Oh, very nice. Well, Rich, you've taken us on an awesome ride today. This has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed listening to your stories and learning more about you. And I want to thank you for sharing your automotive journey with the Cars Yow listeners and with me today. Could you offer us one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you rip off into the sunset in that Caterham 160? Uh, yeah, I, I was kind of, I listened actually to uh, to the the, uh, the podcast he did with Jay Lamb. Yes. Uh, who's obviously an interesting guy. And um, just to paraphrase him, uh, really just get off your ass and do stuff. Um, <laughs> it's it's not expensive to do these things. You can explore different corners of the world on a, on a real budget or have a huge amount of fun in simple and usually fairly tatty old cars without getting precious about it. So yeah, get out there and make it happen. Get off your ass, do it. There you go. Words of wisdom from a guy who walks his talk and gets out there and gets it done. <laughs> What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and the company you're with, motorpunk.co.uk? Uh, just uh, just check it out. Just have a look on motorpunk.co.uk. There's an About Us page uh, on there. I occasionally appear on CBS's Carfection and Motors TV and uh, PPC Mag and a couple of other places. But really, just uh, take a look around at Motorpunk. Another thing I would say, if anybody wants any pointers on uh, where to go and trips, it's I get a lot of emails from people saying, where did you go and where did you find that road and how did you find that? I'm always happy to help because uh, when I started doing this stuff, I didn't get a lot of guidance. I'm, I'm sure there's other people doing this, but I, I never really got any pointers on on how to find these beautiful mountain routes and kind of cheap and interesting places to stay with the crazy locals. And uh, I'm always happy to respond to an email or two. So, yeah, people can uh, find me on motorpunk.co.uk and, uh, yeah, just drop me an email. I'll be, uh, be happy to hear from people. And there you go, listeners. I'll make sure I put Rich's email on his Karja yeah show notes page so you can go there. 
Check it out. I think he's going to be an awesome resource for your next great automotive adventure. Well, thank you, Rich, for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing your many experiences with me today. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. That's great. Nice talking. Cheerio. Cheerio. What's every automotive enthusiast dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage, and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garages built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.